Welcome to Stand a Reason, friends. Greg Kokel here, and um, so glad to uh, chat with you a little bit today and uh, to take your calls. I uh, wanted to give that number in case you don't have it. It's 855 243 You can call me live uh, during the times I'm here live in the studio. Characteristically, that's on Tuesdays from 4 until 6. Pacific time, because we're here in Los Angeles. I mentioned that there's going to be a few weeks I'll be out of town coming up, especially in January. Uh, Also, Christmas week, Christmas to New Year's week, I'm not broadcasting. We have something we're playing then, right, Amy? Between Christmas and no, we're not having anything. So we're, 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 we go dark. (laughs) We go dark between Christmas and New Year's. And, um, for uh, obvious reasons. A lot of times when I'm not in here, I just got to, you know, put together a bunch of extra shows on other time. And it's nice just to have a real break. And so that's what's happening. But um, on regular Tuesdays, uh, this is one of them, 855-243-9975. And I encourage you to, because of the shows coming up that I have to uh, kind of make up off schedule, um, we would really love your open mic calls. That's where you uh, you go to our homepage and then look up uh, podcasts. And uh, then at that section, I'm looking for my note here on this, live broadcast. And uh, there's a feature there that will allow you to actually record your question there. And uh, Amy keeps a long list of it. And these are this is the list that I usually go to for callers. Uh, quasi-live callers. We hear your voice, but I don't interact with you. So I can take your question. It's a great advantage for many of you because you just can't, you know, stay online on hold for an hour or more waiting to chat with me, though many do, and I'm flattered for that. Uh, So you can use our Open Mic Calls feature. That number is 857-DIAL-STR. That's 857-DIAL-STR. 857-D-I-A-L-S-T-R, 857-342-5787. So there's actually two ways that you can do an open mic. You can go to our website, like I mentioned, and go to the broadcast page and uh, follow the prompts, or you can just dial up 857-342-5787 and then go ahead and give your... uh, Give your call. Many have done that, and it's likely we'll get to a couple of those today, depending on our traffic of live calls. All right. Um, I had mentioned in the last broadcast that uh, that I'm in the process of uh, putting together a script for the video series, the ten session video series. That's a lot <laughs> to go along with the book Street Smarts Using Questions to Answer. Christianity's Toughest Challenges, and that will be coming out in June, and I'm just kind of, uh, I've already finished the manuscript. In fact, today they just sent the uh, revised manuscript or any suggested for change to me. That means once you write it, and all the effort you put through to writing it, reading it, reading it, reading it, you got to read the whole thing again to see what changes they've made and see if you like them. 80,000 words. And then... They lay it out in what's called a galley, which means it's like eight and a half by eleven sheets, but it's uh, it's uh, hash marked or cut line marked, so it's smaller and it looks just the way it's going to look like in the book, but on these larger sheets. That's called the galley proof, and then you got to read the whole thing again. 
Um, now you're not looking for major changes. You're looking for, you know, typos or somebody left out a comma or something like that. Just little bitty things to make sure that when it goes out, it's perfect. But it means you got to read all those words again. So I got a lot of work ahead of me in addition to the recording this week and then also the workbook that I'll be working on at the beginning of the year, probably while I'm rusticating or that's not the right word because I'm not living rustically. I'll be in bed, though, or taking it easy after my surgery on January 4 to get a new hip. And the way I think about it is they cut your leg off and then they sew it back on. Kind of, right? Oh, they have to whack right through the whole bone, right? They got to pull that up. I don't know. I, I actually don't want to think about it. But my understanding is they've really come a long way in these kind of ser- surgeries. So I'm going to get an anterior treatment from the front, small incision, four inches, the guy I got doing it is like super famous for doing a really good job. And the last, I just talked to a friend yesterday, had this doctor doing it, took over just a little over an hour to replace the whole hip. And his wife was up walking the next day. Okay. Well, I'm encouraged by that. We'll see. But anyway, I'm going to be convalescing. That's my word, not rusticating. And, uh, Nevertheless, so I've been working on this material for the uh, videos uh, and um, dealing with a chapter on science, and this is, I was talking about this a little bit earlier, and um, of course one of the difficulties that we uh, face in, in this, this uh, situation uh, of the whole issue of science and Christianity, or science and religion if you want to make it broader, is that just the characterization is that these things are at odds. Now, I'm going to admit, it is true that sometimes certain types of religions and religious claims just seem contrary to what we know we have good reason to believe about the physical world. And I don't mean the possibility of miracles. I'm saying, look at Hinduism, at least some forms of Hinduism, teaches that the physical world doesn't even exist. Not the way we think it does. It's just a maya. It's an illusion. Now, if you think the world is illusion, you're not going to be so motivated to figure out the details of the illusion, after all. Okay, and this is a good reason that modern science didn't arise in India, though uh, they certainly had the smarts for that. It's they didn't have the motivation given the nature of their worldview, their religious view about reality. So you can see there's a a problem there. But uh, when this charge is leveled at Christianity, I think it completely misses the mark, all right? Because the, historically, um, th- there is no conflict, or has been no conflict, between um, Christian religion and science as a methodology. Okay, make a distinction there, right? Now, the warfare model is certainly in place now, but it's it's a, a, a new development. Uh, late 19th century, okay, and um, there were two books actually that were were significant in kind of defining this conflict or getting people to think of it in that way. And one is the history of the conflict between religion and science. That's William Draper, or John William Draper, 1874, and a history of the warfare of science with theology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White in 1896. Both later 
19, uh, 20, 19th century, right. And the significance of the dates are it was, uh, what, 1859 when the origin of species was released. And so the kind of conflict between so-called science at that time, the, the received opinions about the way the natural world had developed historically, what was it, were in conflict with religious views. So both of these works kind of fanned the flames between evolutionists and what were then called the religious fundamentalists. Remember, it was the fundamentalists that were responsible for the, 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 the trial, the monkey trial, whatever you want to call it, you know, in, what, 1925, the Scopes trial, uh, which the fundamentalists won in terms of the legal argument, it was legal, later overturned, but they lost the public relations battle, okay? But uh, according to these authors, that battle, evolution, uh, and, and some form of creation was, was, was a battle between science and progress and superstition and repression. So that's the way. So there's a lot of rhetoric that's going on, and this is where that warfare model started. But historians of science give a different account of the role of religion and what it played, the role it played in the birth of modern science. Um, prior to that, in the beginning, like when the when the foundations of science and the scientific method were being laid down, naturalism was not the driving force. Something else was the driving force. It was theological conviction that was the foundational factor in the genesis of science. And this is what a lot of people do not understand. When you read the primary source documents of people like Isaac Newton, for example, who wrote more on theology than he did on science. This is Newton. He wrote 1.3 million words on theology. All right. Why? Because he viewed nature as God's second book of Revelation. There was a fit between both of the books in his mind. Okay. Um, the and, and this is why, by the way, the basic methods of science sprouted from the theological soil of Christian Europe. And, and there were very particular reasons for this when you read the histories of it, and I do capture this a bit in um, the 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 um, in the book Street Smarts coming out, and also if you've uh, purchased, and I hope you have, <laughs> uh, Stephen Meyer's newest book, The Rebirth or The Renewal, what is it, of the God Hypothesis, The uh, Return. There it is, The Second Coming. The Return of the God Hypothesis. He uses that language because the God Hypothesis was alive and well <clears throat> at the outset and responsible for laying the foundation for uh, modern science. And then it got jettisoned by those much more sympathetic to a philosophy coming out of the Enlightenment, philosophy of materialism, and now it's coming back. Why? Because everybody's changing their views? No, because they're looking at the evidence. They are changing their views, but uh, uh, almost against their will in some cases. And he has a lot of citations, and I have some more in my own book, but of, of people who were atheists and said, look at, I, the, 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 it's so obvious that the universe has been monkeyed with. The physics have been clearly designed, and I can't avoid that 
conclusion is what these say. It's paraphrased, but this is their point. So it's the obvious order of nature that fit the Christian convictions of the fi- of the pioneers of modern science that allowed them to build science. In their mind, it was a divine mind that had ordered the world the way it was. This is what they're discovering, an ordered world. And if a rational God fashioned the universe, then rational man, who's made in God's image, on their view, could unlock its secrets. That was the thinking of, of those men, people like astronomer Johannes Kepler, chemist Robert Boyle, physicist Isaac Newton. I just mentioned him. They, they were founding fathers of the whole enterprise, and they were deeply committed to theological concepts. Newton was not a Trinitarian. I'm not going to quibble about that, though, because all three of these were deeply committed to a Christian biblical worldview, okay? And um, they also understood, incidentally, that given the fall, okay, what does that mean, the fall? It means means human human beings are marred, and they're not just they're marred in their religion, they are marred in their thinking. They are they are uh, fallible. They could be mistaken about things because of their fallen nature. That's the reason why um, systematic testing, systematic experimentation, close observation, each looking over experimental repeatability, everybody looking over everybody else's shoulder to making sure that they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's, peer review, these are all necessary to avoid error by fallen people who are prone to that. Okay? That's how the scientific method began to take shape. And the uniformity of order that they saw in nature uh, that these founding fathers of science saw was, in their mind, a fingerprint of the intelligent designer who made the natural world that way. Okay, so you, 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 it, the irony is, even though things are characterized now as this um, battle between science and religion, it, this is contrived. It's, it's not about the findings of science. It isn't about the methods of science. The conflict is with a philosophical view, not a scientific view, that is imposed on the modern scientific enterprise. It's philosophy, not methodology. That's the concern. And this is why any reference to a creator is dismissed out of hand as not science. Well, wait a minute. You haven't even looked at the reasons why we think a creator is the best explanation for the way things are. doesn't matter. You're off the reservation if you even suggest something that's not a naturalistic cause, okay? Well, that's philosophy. That's not science. And uh, I mentioned Kepler and Boyle and Newton, but there's also so Copernicus and Galileo and Pascal and Linnaeus— He's the Swedish botanist that founded the modern classification of plants and animals called taxonomy. Uh, George Cuvier, uh, father of paleontology, comparative anatomy. Michael Faraday, uh, chemist, physicist, discovered the principles of electromagnetic induction. You have Gregor Mendel, who was a monk, for goodness sake. He was an Augustinian monk who was the father of modern 
genetics. Uh, many of you might remember in school doing the whole, uh, what, uh, P, what do they call those things? Sweet pea things with the sweet pea flowers. That was Mendel to figure out how, you know, you have recessive genes and you all of that. I don't remember all the details, but I get it conceptually. Yeah, that guy was, he, he was the founder of modern genetics. All right. A monk. All right. So one thing <clears throat> that <clears throat> is clear from history is that there's never been any inherent hostility between the Christian worldview and the methods or principles of science proper. The methods or principles of science proper, okay? In other words, Christianity is not at war with science. It never has been. Rather, Western civilization, grounded in a biblical worldview, birthed the scientific enterprise. God wasn't a science stopper. He was the science starter, right? More detail on that, of course, in the book coming up. I'm just giving you a taste of what you're in for if you want to grab that. In June, we'll make it available to you, too, when it comes out. It's part of our enterprise at Stand to Reason. Let's take a break, and uh, then we'll come back to uh, your calls. It looks like we're going to be doing open mic calls for the rest of the show, unless you want to call in at 855-243-9975 if you're listening by live streaming. Hope to hear from you. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. The pro-life view against abortion involves legal, moral, scientific, and philosophical reasoning. So, why do abortion choice advocates keep insisting that pro-life arguments are religious? Find out the reason in the latest episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to YouTube.com and search STR Videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR Videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. 
Greg Kokel here giving you a piece of my mind, as I do generally on Tuesday afternoons at 4 until 6 p.m. Los Angeles time, after which I usually have a pizza. Uh, <laughs> oh, now I got Amy's rolling her eyes like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And uh, But I think today I'm going to get Mexican food, which our family loves. We had it last night. We had takeout. And, uh, but there's a Mexican restaurant close to us called Cisco's that makes the, I, I like chili rellenos, um, in general, but I've had some really bad ones. Uh, but this particular one is the best chili relleno ever had. And it's from a restaurant that's like seven minutes from my house. And, uh, it is a chili, it is a chili relleno with a, with a pasilla chili and it's stuffed with chicken and cheese, and smothered in cheese, and special sauce. I mean, it is, wow, to die for. It's great. <laughs> Amy, <laughs> this isn't a fast day for you. No, I know it isn't. She's been eating Christmas candy. Okay, well, sorry about that. Uh, but I'm going to have a chili rano tonight. I'm supposed to have it last night, but we got the time got away from us, and the restaurant closed, so we ended up going to El Polo, Pollo Loco, which is the crazy chicken. And, uh, uh, okay, what does that have to I got... <laughs> In 40, what, 40 minutes, I'll be heading towards my chili reno, but it takes me an hour and a half to get home from the office. Okay, so let's let's take an open call. I know everybody's listening now. They're, they're, their jaws are dripping here, and they're thinking, you know, I'm going to get a taco or something here. Um, I live in Southern California, so we got some good choices. Um, let's see. Tiffany, was that a daughter? No, no, no. I feel compelled to take these in order. Uh, even though I'm not always sure what I'm going to say, because that these that the order indicates when people send them in, and some have been waiting longer than others, obviously. So let's go to Christina's call. Um, do you have that up there, Kyle? Okay, let's hear from Christina. Hi, my name is Christina, and I'm looking for guidance. I am blessed with two little girls age three and under. Why I believe in God my whole life, I don't consider myself to be a follower of Jesus until the last five years. Right, by, right before I married an unbeliever. He is not an atheist, but doesn't have conviction. Fortunately, he supports me and raising our girls up as Christian women. Here's my question. Although my girls are young, how can I begin to shape their worldview and help them understand Jesus? The burden of discipling them will be all on me until the Holy Spirit uh, convicts my husband. I'm looking for practical but specific tips. This is a great question, and uh, there's more detail here that you gave me, Christina, in your 41-second question than, than the summary that Amy has, so I'm more confident I can respond to this. Amy always gives me a quick summary so I know what I'm getting myself into. Um, I am really glad to hear that your husband is supportive. He doesn't have any convictions of his own. He's not an atheist, so or no conviction spiritual one way or another, it seems to be. So it sounds like he's a neutral player especially if he's going to be supportive. In other words, he is ideologically neutral, but supportive of your views and your influence on your girls, which is really huge. It's, I mean, that is huge. It's, it's great if you can have um, a father that leads the family spiritually, and maybe someday you'll have that, Christina. I hope you will. But I'll just tell you this. Um, I, 
you didn't mention whether you're a stay-at-home mom or not, um, but I, I, I don't know why. I'm just going to presume that you are. Uh, even if you're out there, you are in a position to have a greater influence on your daughters spiritually than your husband is. Um, for two reasons. One reason, you sp- most moms spend more time with the kids than dads do. And it's just a reality of, of the way things work out in culture and jobs and all that, especially if you're a stay-at-home mom. You have the most time with them. Okay, so you're going to have a bigger impact. It would be much more difficult if 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 uh, your husband was calling me or uh, raising this issue and the roles were reversed. Okay, Um, you're in a much better position to make a difference in your daughter's life. And the second reason is their daughters. I have two daughters, too. And I have two cats that are female. So it means we got five females in our family. Wait, I got a male cat, and he's 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 a brute, and he's a bud, but we are overpowered by estrogen. And my girl daughters are teenagers; yours are younger. Um, but especially when they're teenagers, it's like you know they have this little cabal of a conversation, and I'm kind of on the outside because there's a private person. There's not private, but there's a a kind of a dynamic and chemistry that a mom has with her daughters as they're growing up that is very unique now it's important that that the daughters and the father have a good connection and for a long time my you know eva my youngest was my buddy and we had lots of close times together um I don't think she thinks about that now or remembers it so well. And there was a much shorter time that my eldest daughter uh, and I had close times together, but that relationship was much stronger with my wife, okay? But the fact that they're they're girls and you're raising them is really—that's an encouraging thing, too. So the two things just to encourage you on. They're daughters, and you have more time with them than your husband— will, and so therefore, you're going to have a bigger impact on their life. And you're the Christian. Okay, now the question is, what about practical stuff, all right? And here, here is what um, advice I've given to other people. I've mentioned it here, uh, I think, in passing, and it's based on the, the regrets that I have about how the spiritual life of my own children were formed by me in our in our domestic dynamic okay i'm not blaming anybody whatever i'm just saying here's my advice you want to start as early as possible and your girls are 3 and under perfect as early as possible investing in them on a regular basis investing in them spiritually on a regular basis now regular will be different for different families it could be after dinner and before tv if you watch TV in your family, or, and if you do so after dinner. Having meals together is really important for the strength of the family. This is just a general principle, okay? If you're eating out of styrofoam a lot, or everybody's eating at all different times, that really fractures the unity of the family. I'm just saying, all right? In our family, when I was growing up, we had five kids, mom and dad. We always ate dinners together. 
you know, and all other meals too, when, you know, especially dinners though, but because, you know, you have school and everything during the week and other things are happening on the weekends, but dinners, especially in our case, Sunday dinner was a big deal. It was like a roast or a chicken or a, a turkey or ham or whatever every Sunday. Okay, that really solidified our communion. Now, for a Christian family, this is an opportunity then, afterwards, plates are cleared, to have uh, a kind of age-appropriate time in some spiritual endeavor, all right? The key I'm focusing in on here now is regularity and starting so early, like you are right now, Christina, that your kids will never remember a time that this wasn't part of the family. If you have teenagers and you haven't done this and you try to start it now, that's going to be hard. Okay, now we're trying something new, kids. We're going to have Bible study ah, after dinner. Ah, I have this, I have that, I have the other thing. So you know how it is. Young people have their own lives that they're developing, their own friends' time away. So it's really hard to get started when the kids are older. The earlier you start, the better. And Christina, you are in a perfect position to do that. Now remember, it's age-appropriate. Um, so when they're younger, it's going to be smaller things. It might be, you know, what, what is, there's a great and well-known, we have one, a big stu, a kid Bible story book. I don't like the, the concept of Bible stories because they're not stories. They, they're accounts. These things really happen. But it's, it's the, I, I wish I could think of it now. It's the wonderful, I wish I could kind of picture this large thing. I think Crossway maybe published it. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm looking at my colleagues here, but what, you don't read that to your kids? <laughs> I'm just harassed. It's called the Big Bible Book or something like that. It's Amy's checking it out. I don't know. It's, I'm not giving, but so th there are books like that that give them basic information about uh, well-known events in uh in scripture it may be a bible storybook of some sort but it, but i don't like i said i don't like the word stories let's just say it educates on biblical events now that's good for kids because they're active historical things they're not heavily theological but there are theological points that can be made faithfulness to god obedience how god comes through in hard times or that there will be hard times things like that now as time goes on there are more things that you you can expand on that. Um, maybe uh, I know a lot of Christian families have told me they've taken books that they've read, you know, a chapter an evening. This is when the kids get a little older. So look around. The big picture Bible book. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Good job, Amy. She's just turning her computer around showing me. That's the big, is it the big picture? The big picture story Bible. Okay, so I'll live with the word story for the time being, but you know my concerns about that. These are a record of events, big pictures, easy for kids. All right? So when you're they're little, that's what you do. And you do it with, with together. The three-year-old's going to be better than, I don't know, the other one's younger, maybe a toddler, but just, just include the younger one when there's some ability to follow along. And you're going to be the one, Mom, Christina, who leads them in that, okay? As they get older, there's going to be more things that you'll be able to offer them, all right? There are lots and lots of resources out there 
that will help you. Now, uh, I have a, a colleague who is, has done a wonderful job in preparing things for parents that they can use with their kids, and they are tur- turnkey lessons. And uh, they they are also apologetically oriented. Now, I don't know what the age range is on this. Uh, I, I'm talking about Natasha Crane, and that's C-R-A-I-N. And her series of books, the first one is Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. Then there's a second one about God. There's a third one about Jesus. And, of course, right now we're featuring her fourth book, which is for grown-ups, but it's magnificent. And uh, and it's called um, Faithfully Different, okay? Uh, so she's deviated from her standard thing, because she's raising her own kids and figuring out how to do that. And so she also has a podcast. Um, Natasha Crane, I think, is is the way to write it. It used to be ChristianMom.com or whatever, but now it's just Natasha Crane. But she, uh, in in her books, I suggest definitely get Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, because there'll be a time when that material will be good for your growing kids, Christina. I'll tell you something else that really makes a difference. So there, So I've suggested a pattern, and the pattern's the critical thing, the content, I've offered some suggestions, but as time changes, you'll be using different resources. And if you poke around, you're going to find from other people, you know, what they're using successfully. Um, on, on Online, oh, I use the uh, Bible Project, right? Is that what it's called? These are these, these uh, narrative things. Amy's not wild about them, but generally speaking— for little older kids, grade school kids, it helps to tell about particular books. So if you want to study the book of Joshua, then you have you can look at that. It's not going to be good for a three or four or five-year-old, but as they get older. My daughter, Annabeth, was a very good reader. At five years old, she, she read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, the reason I wanted her to read Chronicles of Narnia, starting with that book, is because there's a lot of theological content uh, that's that's kind of hidden between the lines, as it were, in a really fun fantasy that's really well written by C.S. Lewis. So that's another series of books, and you might even choose those books to read to your girls as they're growing up, uh, because they're fun and they're good dramas. Now, Focus of the Family has actually made a dramatized version of these. You can you can buy them on the internet. You can get them on Amazon cheaper than you get them focus. <laughs> just saying. Uh, um, but uh, they're fabulous, except they're going to scare your little kids. you got to wait until they're like five or six or seven. I know Annabeth liked it, but Eva was three years younger. She didn't want to listen to it because it's too scary. And that's because of the animation and stuff like that. But you can read those books if you have them. Easy, nicely written, easy to follow. So that might be uh, another step of uh, reading to your kids from those books uh, sometime during the day. If you're homeschooling your kids, you can work it in during the day. Um, if not, you can do it in the evening and uh, maybe every night for 15 minutes or maybe every other night. I mean, you have to figure that out What's work, what works for you. But the other thing that's really a big difference, makes a big difference, is the way you live before them. Uh, Christian Smith, who has done some uh, landmark surveys of of Christian 
children and Christian families and, and young people and teenagers, etc. <clears throat> He's with Notre Dame. Uh, one of the more recent ones he've done has shown that if you if kids have parents that live consistently according to Christianity, that their lives demonstrate a consistency between what they say and what they de- do, it's almost determinative that their kids will be Christian. I mean, it's like it's in the eight, upper eighty percent correlation. That's huge. Now, I understand that in your case, Christina, your husband is not a Christian, but he's he um, he's not so he's not going to be contributing as much. Maybe morally and in, in terms of his personal virtue, he's kind of along with you, and that's going to be good for them to see. But the more that you display a consistent uh, Christian witness in the way you live your life, and that you explain in your, your children, here's I'm doing this because this is what Jesus wants me to do, and I want to be a a, a, an obedient daughter of God, etc., etc., that also is going to have a huge impact on them for Christ. So I've, uh, you know, tossed out a lot of stuff here for you, Christina, and um, and partly I'm not just trying to encourage you, though I am, I'm trying to encourage other Christians in in your circumstances, or even if the husband and wife both are believers— the the same things that I've suggested will serve them as well, too. Keep in mind, Christina, even though you're the only believer in your family, you can have a massive good influence on your kids for Christ. And who knows, in the process of doing all that, the Lord might use that in the life of your husband. So thank you so much for your question. I really appreciate it. Important stuff. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back to more open calls, open mic calls, on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store.
my faithful sidekick, famous Amos, found out that uh, the the uh, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, animated series, you know, when you listen like a radio series, that Focus on the Family produced, I actually bought mine on on Amazon and it was cheaper there. That's not the case anymore. It's all digital everywhere, so you don't get the piece, the, the 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 hard stuff, the the uh, product proper. Okay, it's all digital, but the all digital is now less expensive through Focus on the Family in their bookstore. So what is that? Focus on the Family dot com. Yeah, and then uh, look for the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the the not animated series. It's the the radio what. What do they call it there? Oh, it's Radio Theater with the British spelling of theater, T-R-E. Um, and and that's because the, uh, and there's a lot of other things as well that could be fun. So it's, that's a good recommendation. I'm it, who I'm thinking of the reader is David So. Um, oh, he's the guy who played the that who's uh you know david david say Suchet, that's right sachet Suchet. he's the guy who played the detective for agatha christie movies or whatever you know that guy but he's a great reader he's a great reader and it's and then there's other characters in there you have the reader and then you have the characters that are played by different actors and the sound and all that other stuff. 80 bucks, Focus on the Family, uh, worth every cent, in my view. And by the way, it's not just for kids. I love listening to these things. And uh, uh, I, I, I listen to them, and I don't read the books anymore, although I have them. And they're very, very encouraging to me spiritually. One of the most encouraging ones, if anybody wants cares, is, uh, and there's also the movies, too, that are fairly well done. Although there's a few things in some of these movies that are a little bit more modern than Lewis. In any event, um, the one that I like the best is The Horse and the Boy, because it has to do with uh, all kinds of discouragements a, a boy experiences, only to, uh, to find out that and discovers, and then the details are displayed. I won't do a spoiler here, that 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 Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the series has been with him all the time, caring for him all the time, and he doesn't realize it until there's the the all the details kind of come together in this magnificent um, denouement or, or uh, climax, I guess, and then resolution and the denouement at the end. So, eighty bucks for the series again. Christmas time, it's worth every penny in my view. All right, let's see. Let's. Um, I'm checking out my open mic calls here. Uh, okay, let's look at Troy here, because this has to do with uh, Darwinism and Reformed theology. It's an interesting combination. What does Troy have to say? Hi, Greg. Uh, I was. This is Troy. I was calling to ask if uh, you could explain the difference between Reformed theology and uh, Darwinistic determinism. <laughs> Uh, I, I recently listened to STR Ask and uh, was just curious as to how to maybe explain that to someone if we were um, in an apologetic conversation. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Great question, Troy. And it touches on a number of different issues. So here, as as usual, 
it's important for me to zero in on a couple of things to make certain distinctions, okay? Darwinism, classically construed, is a materialistic process. And what I mean by that is it's a description of how living things um, develop the diversity that we see in the biological world through a purely naturalistic process called Darwinian evolution. Um, it entails a physical change in the genes, that's called a mutation, which mutation then, when exposed in a sense to the environment, the reality of that organism's life that it's living, either gets rejected because the mutation does not help it to reproduce, get its genes into the next generation, or gets accepted after a fashion. That is, it improves its ability to get its genes into the next generation, and therefore subsequent generations have that changed gene that gets passed on. And when that's done millions and millions and millions and millions of times in cells all through the body and a lot of different characteristics over millions and millions and millions and millions of years, the story goes, the, uh, this accounts for the diversity of biological life on Earth. Okay, so that's I'm just characterizing the view there. <clears throat> what I've just characterized, given that it's a materialistic process, is deterministic. That is, certain, um, certain events follow naturally and deterministically from prior events because there's nothing but event causation. There are no agents making decisions about things, certainly not a God agent, in Darwinism classically construed. And so what you have in a physicalistic system is, is a physically determined system. And that's a liability for materialists that on a materialistic view of reality, which includes and entails Darwinism, there is no freedom of choice. Okay? Now, there are many, many atheistic um, um, evolutionists, which they goes hand in hand, pretty much, um, admit that the whole process is deterministic and it doesn't bother them. Okay? <laughs> so there is atheistic, there is Darwinism construed in the classic sense and coupled with a materialistic understanding of reality, a materialistic metaphysic, if you will, that is deterministic. Okay? However, not all Darwinists are materialists. And so you have a lot of people who believe in the immaterial realm. Uh, and I'd say that most of these are going to be Christians, but they might be Jewish um, or Muslim, who believe in immaterial realm and that God can intervene in the process, even though they think that God used Darwinism in some sense. Oh, I think there are problems with that way of looking at things, but that's not my point here. My point just is that classical Darwinism that's materialistic is deterministic, but not all Darwinists are materialists. So we, we can't just presume that Darwinism 
held by certain people is uh, is deterministic. Just making that qualification. The key here, though, the connection with your in your question regarding reform theology, is that people have have the opinion. I'm trying to be very careful how I use my words here. That um, if God predestines humans in a certain way, that means everything is predestined. And that if God determines certain things about humans, then everything is determined. Now, I think this is a mistake, uh, because it certainly isn't my view as a person who holds to sovereign grace. So I would have, I mean, uh, a Reformed view of salvation when the Bible says that God elects the elect. I think it's God who's doing the election of the elect. It's not the elect electing themselves. All right? I'm not trying to be coy here or cute. I'm just—there is a difference of opinion about how that works, okay? I think it's pretty straightforward. But—and I think that there is a predestination that is involved. That is, and the way and that both of these words are used in the New Testament, uh, Romans eight, that those that God has predestined Christians to be conformed to the image of His Son. So there is a an event, or there's an aspect of our lives that God has secured by His power and His well will. That is for Christians, however it is somebody became a Christian, God has arranged it that they will certainly be conformed to the image of God's Son, and that's probably most thoroughly accomplished in the resurrection. So, do you see that just because somebody uh, is, is destined beforehand by God to reach a certain end in their life doesn't mean that everything about that person's life is predestined in a strict, deterministic fashion. Those are two entirely different things. Now, some people who are Calvinist or Reformed with regards to salvation and have a very, very strong sense of the sovereignty of God they cash that out, or they ground that, God getting what he wants, um, in a very broadly deterministic way. I acknowledge that. But that's not everybody who holds to sovereign grace, who is Reformed in their theology, particularly regarding salvation. So, um, you know, my, my, I, I could say that my daughters are predestined to gain my inheritance, such as it is. The estate falls to them. Okay, that's like a done deal. This is the way it's going to work. Well, just because the estate will, and we'll just we'll just specify for the sake of discussion, that's going to happen for sure. The world's not going to blow up between now and then. I mean, just going to. But if it were to happen for certain, that doesn't mean that their lives are all predestined. It just means they're going to get something for sure. And so, in some cases where God says there's a predestination. He means that the Christian is going to get something for sure, and he's going to make sure he gets that. And what he's going to get in this case is be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, that's Romans 8. 
okay? And there are other things that have to do with salvation. Those whom he chose for salvation, this would be more of a reform understanding of choosing, um, he is going to, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the series of the connected events here, and it's in Romans somewhere, Amy knows what it is, but uh, those who he chose, he, uh, he uh, it's in chapter 8 of Romans. Can you just tell me, right, do you know the sequence, right, or you don't? Amy knows these things by heart. Don't you, Amy? She's laughing right now. You can't hear her. Like, oh, me? Yeah, okay, but... Um, the, there's a sequence of God choosing and justifying and, and uh, sanctifying and glorifying kind of thing. That's right. Verse 29 of Romans 8. Okay, so, um, and now I'm not arguing for a Reformed view here. I'm just going to read this verse and show that there are certain things that God has committed himself to do. That's Romans 8, verse—I'm sorry, Amy—29, okay? For those whom he foreknew— he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. I already mentioned that. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. All right? So th there is a sequence of things that are guaranteed for all believers that God is going to do. That's the promise. Okay, but because there is a series of things that God guarantees for believers that he is going to accomplish, they are predestined to that, doesn't mean that everything about them and every choice that they make is predestined in the sense of being strictly determined. Now, that's the question, as I understand it, Troy, that you're asking because you're connecting Reformed theology with Darwinistic determinism. First of all, Darwinism is deterministic if you're a materialist, but it's not deterministic if you're not a materialist. All right? Reformed people are not, are not materialists. They believe in agency, God's agency and our agency, you know? And so, um, therefore, there is no connection between Reformed theology and Darwinistic determinism. There can be some who are Reformed and are Darwinists, theistic evolutionists, but they're not deterministic in virtue of being Darwinists because they think God, an agent, used, managed, controlled the evolutionary process. Uh, also, that they're Reformed doesn't mean there's anything deterministic about their worldview, necessarily. Some maybe, some not. But uh, it it, being Reformed does mean that you, you believe that God has ordained inexorably certain uh, ends for believers. And I just read it to you out of Romans 8, and it seems to me that which I read, Arminians would affirm as well, because it says it really clearly, those whom he foreknew, and that would be the, the word that Arminians might define differently than Reformed folk, but however you get to be foreknown, you are then predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You are called, you'll be justified, you'll be glorified. These are things that God ensures. And by the way, I'm glad he ensures it. What I'm trying to show you here is that there are certain aspects 
of salvation that are guaranteed for us and that is is not tied to your understanding of whether or not grace is sovereign in a reformed or calvinistic sense or grace is is a response to a libertarian free choice that people make however you end up making that choice how you understand foreknowledge as paul describes it in romans 8 um, there are still a sequence of events that we all agree are going to take place. This is what we take joy in, that we will be justified, we will be sanctified, and we will be glorified. That's our inheritance that God guarantees for us, and that is not, is not strict determinism by itself, and, and that is true regardless of whether you're Reformed or not. That's part of the package for all Christians, and not really that controversial at that point. I hope that clarifies things. Thanks for your your uh, uh, question, Troy, and thank you for your time together with me today, friends. I'm Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, all right? Bye-bye now.